So after serving as Secretary of Education under President Obama, Arnie Duncan returned home to Chicago in 2016, committed to trying to dramatically reduce the amount of gun violence in our city. Starting with 30 men in the fall of 2016, Chicago CRED, along with its many community partners, now serves approximately 500 of the young men most at risk of shooting and being shot. He views these men not as the problem, but as the solution to the problem. Walking with them and learning from them as they work towards individual and neighborhood transformation, he wants to continue to scale these efforts and build the public and private sector partnerships necessary to create real opportunity and make Chicago the fastest, big the safest big city in the nation. Uh, you guys can go and read all you want about Secretary Duncan, Arnie, whatever it is that you call him. Uh, but as for right now, I'd like to ask him to come to the podium so that we can hear what he has to say. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. We've never done a PowerPoint before, so this will be a bit of a new experience. But uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. And if it messes up, it's my fault, not my team's. But uh, we'll walk through this and just want to start with the uh, CEO of McDonald's, Chris Kay, who was here a couple weeks ago. I think he, actually, he asked a pretty basic question, sort of what's the plan to reduce violence? And that honest, fair, I think critically important question sort of got derided or ridiculed or definitely didn't get answered. So what I thought was to just try and take a stab at, at trying to answer that question and put forward a plan that we can debate, we can critique, please ask questions, please push back, but to start to an answer that question collectively of how as a city do we get to a better place in terms of keeping our, our citizens and our kids much, much safer than we do today. To start to do that, we should just look at where we're at today. So we'll go to the next slide. So homicides are down. Uh, that's a good thing from last year. There you go. Pass the fill. Um, but I also don't, always, don't want us to celebrate too much. Last year was the highest level right, in right. decades and decades and decades. Right. We're still way above pre-pandemic levels, and we have a long, long way to go. I think we all feel the sense of urgency, understand the crisis that our, our city and our communities are facing. Uh, the, the violence robberies are up you know, significantly, so this is not some mission accomplished moment. <laughs> we'll celebrate any progress. We all have to know how far we have to go and to try and get to anything that's reasonable. What I always want us to understand here in Chicago is where we are relative to other cities. So we can go to the next slide. So the reality of it is, is that of the three largest cities, we are significantly more violent than either New York or L.A., we haven't had effective policing strategies. We haven't had a coherent citywide reduction of violence strategy. During the pandemic, all three cities saw increases in violence, but LA and New York increased slower at a less rapid rate than we did. And because our base was so high, we skyrocketed beyond them, again, because we don't have a mature violence reduction strategy and infrastructure to back that. If you go to the next slide, What's pretty devastating is Chicago has five times the violence rate, five times, not 5%, five times the violence rate of New York and three times the violence rate of L.A. And every year, while we are obviously the third largest city, New York and L.A. are bigger than us, 
every single year we have more homicides, more shootings than New York and L.A. added together. So any of us who think we are where we need to be <laughs> or we're as good as we can be has to really think, rethink this. We are at a point of crisis. It makes no sense that every year we have more than the two largest cities added together. So then the, the, the knee-jerk reaction is, okay, we have more violence, we need more police. That's, a, that's an obvious thing, obvious you know, conclusion to, to think about. You go to the next slide, it's actually really interesting. <laughs> we have twice as many police per citizen as L.A. <laughs> and about the same as New York. So if police made us safer, Chicago would arguably be the safest city in America. And we'll, we'll get into policing as we get, get, our, get into this discussion. But I just want to leave with you, that's not the easy answer. And frankly, there are no easy answers. So the question is, you know, what do we do? What's our plan? We're at a point that is untenable. It is unfair to everyone in our city, but particularly our children. Um, it doesn't have to be this way. <laughs> it's not this way in other cities. So where do we go and how do we think about it? And so I want to talk about a three-pronged strategy to come at this. Every prong is critical. Every prong is interdependent. None of us can do this work by ourselves and walk through how the three sectors, community violence interruption, intervention sector, policing the public sector and the private sector, what we all need to do going forward to step up and get Chicago to a radically different place. So we'll take each of those sectors uh, in turn, start with the one where we and our team at Chicago Cred, and we have some, so many amazing partners, many of whom are here today, many not in the room, talk about the work that we've been trying to do over the past six years to build a partnership in about 30 of our communities, investing in the places where we see the most violence. We have to have stable long-term funding. We have to continue to hold ourselves accountable for results. But the early results coming out of studies from the University of Chicago, Northwestern, we're trying to be very rigorous in our data analysis, is that uh, these are ballpark numbers, but young men and women who come through our program have about a 50% reduction in victimization. So we would love that to be 80%. We would love that to be 90%. None of us are satisfied. But you think about as a city, <laughs> if we had a 50% reduction in violence, what that would mean for the city. So promising some great partnerships in, in different neighborhoods. So I'm going to walk through two specific parts of our work. And these are just two, two strategies. There are many others, many other neighborhoods. But I want to talk about North Lawndale. So North Lawndale, uh, North Lawndale is always one of the three, four, five most violent neighborhoods. We thought we were doing pretty good work there, working with partners, working with about 200 men. And uh, University of Chicago Crime Labs came back and said there are 1,250 men acutely at risk of shooting and being shot in North Lawndale. So we were at less than 20%. And we don't know what critical mass is. We're, we know we're not there yet, but we know 20% or less than 20% is nowhere near where we need to be. So the investment over time with great partners, Ready and UCAN and so many others in the community, um, is to try and touch as many of that critical mass as we can. It is very, very early in the first year of this partnership, and I always want to be very, very careful. There's a big difference between correlation and causation. I will never claim in any of this that there is causation, but I will talk about correlation. In a neighborhood like North Lawndale, to see that neighborhood down, historically one of the most violent neighborhoods in Chicago, see that neighborhood down 52% so far year to date, and I don't want to jinx this, I always want to knock on wood, you know, things could, could blow up tonight or tomorrow, but to see that kind of progress with great partnerships, 
um, gives me tremendous hope about where we can go. But I want to sort of dig into the details of how we do this. And there's tremendous heart in this work, but there's also tremendous analytics. So if we can go to the next slide. This is the kind of dashboard that we produce every month with our partners. And it's too much to walk through every piece of it. But we hold ourselves accountable for the increases in number of men we're seeing. You can see that May to June, May to August increase, and we're still nowhere near critical mass. We have to keep growing there. Um, we keep, keep track of non-aggression agreements, peace treaties. While we do the individual work of men and women, for me, that's the air cover. If you can get the bullets to stop flying, it gives re people reasons to put down the guns, come to programming, feel much safer. We map out the mediations. We have for each group, people talk about you know, the gang structure. <laughs> In North Lawndale, I don't even call them gangs, call them cliques, call them groups. In North Lawndale alone, there are at least 30 different cliques. So anyone who says they want to do a gang summit for the city has no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> there are no more big gangs. That's one neighborhood, 30 different cliques. And Rosen, where we're deep on the south side, is about 34. So think of that times 15, 16 neighborhoods. So this is block by block, small groups. Sometimes they're lying, sometimes they're fighting, sometimes things blow up within a group and you have intra-group, uh, inter-group conflict. So this is super complicated, but we have to map all this, track it, we map every conflict, we map, we have peace, peace agreements, non-aggression agreements, who's, who's able to get along, who's not, where can we safely serve folks, and to see where we can, can continue to go together at about 450 now, think about if we can get to 650, 750, 800, if we can get closer to that 1250, Think about the reductions there. And when you talk about, for the city, a 17% reduction, that's encouraging. But I would say if you live in a neighborhood where normally there's 100 bullets flying and now there are 83 bullets flying, do you feel any safer? You don't feel any safer. So the constant question for me to our guys is, do you feel safer? And even though North Lawndale is showing a 50% reduction, our guys in North Lawndale are not yet saying they feel a whole heck of a lot safer. So you have to get to that 60, 70, 80% reduction to know you're making a difference. So very encouraging start to the work, but a heck of a long way to go. Another strategy from the violence intervention community is called FLIP, Flat, Flatlining Violence Inspires Peace. And it's really important for folks to understand how hyper-local violence is. You have 15 neighborhoods in Chicago that produce two-thirds, three-quarters of the violence, but there are parts of those neighborhoods that are extraordinarily safe. There are other parts, unfortunately, that are basically war zones. And so what we try to do is identify, again, rigorous data analysis, different data sources, police, crime labs, others, identify the actual blocks that are the most violent in those most violent neighborhoods. And we identified 86 what we call hot spots in 12 of those neighborhoods. And what we did, and this is a controversial strategy, and not everyone will, will agree with it, is we hire folks from that block who have had a hand perhaps in that violence, may have one foot in, one foot out, maybe one and a half feet still in, half a foot out, and we hire them to keep their, their, their block safe. And you can never hire one side, then you have to hire guys on the other side of the conflict, because if you hire one, they're putting down the guns, they'll get steamrolled, you actually increase their risk. So you have to work on both sides. Just to walk through some of the data, again, we have trying to always be evidence-driven. As of midsummer, 92% of flipped community areas, 11 out of 12, have seen reductions in violence and, and, and shooting victims and homicides in 2021. 76% of the hotspots, again, these are the most violent blocks in Chicago, have had zero shootings. 51 non-aggression and peace, peace agreements 
negotiated by our, by our FLIP workers, almost 400 mediations. The FLIP community areas have seen a 32% reduction in shooting victimization, almost double the city rate. And nearly 100 of our FLIP peacekeepers have become outreach workers. It's sort of like our, our farm system, our way to, to identify talent and leadership and have them grow. So again, never causation, but is there a correlation between hiring folks who have been caught in these cycles of violence to actually keep the peace? And we all have way too many stories. I don't want to start telling a bunch of anecdotes and stories here, but spending lots of time this summer traveling with Jalen, visiting hot spots across the city to see the pride that young men and women have in representing their community and seeing the violence come down, it is transformational. We have to keep working with them. We have to keep helping them grow. Um, this is risky work. Very tragically, we've had a couple of flip workers killed, a couple in the line of duty while working. So this is not something that we take lightly. It's something we worry about every single day. Are we increasing risk or increasing safety? But to see the impact they're having in making their community safer is extraordinary. So in the community violence on our side of the fence, community violence intervention, what do we have to do? Three points. We have to continue to scale. So the truth is we're not at critical mass in any neighborhood, in any neighborhood. We're trying to start to get there in North Lawndale, but if we're trying to get to critical mass in 15 neighborhoods, we have a long, long way to go. We have to continue to be transparent and vulnerable with our data. There are places where we're winning. There are places where we're losing. We'll make some, some progress, and then we'll fall back. There's nothing linear about this work. It's, you have great days, and you have terrible days. So we have to be transparent, be vulnerable, hold each other accountable, uh, share all our data, put it out there, put it out there publicly, have you guys debate it, talk about it. And we have to be evidence-driven. We can't just go with what we think, what our intuition tells us. We have to go where the evidence uh, tells us to go. And then the third point is we have to continue to develop our workforce whether it's life coaches, whether it's outreach workers who want to do other things. Um, you want to create a real profession that historically this was funded for a summer, for a couple months, everybody was let go. This has to be year-round. This has to be career paths. It has to be a trajectory for folks that want to do other things. But to see that the pipeline grow from flip workers to outreach to life coaches to whatever it might be is pretty remarkable. We need our most experienced outreach workers to be training other outreach workers across the city. We're all in this together. There's no pride here. There's no ego. We're all trying to get better together. So those three things, how we continue to scale and do this work at scale in 15 neighborhoods. And I always just say, it's only 15 neighborhoods in Chicago. For me, it's so manageable. This is not, it's, yeah. If we can't come together and, and do this work in 15 neighborhoods, it's sort of shame on us. Let's continue to be transparent with all of our information, put it all out there, successes, failures, and let's continue to develop a workforce, a professionalize a workforce that can sustain this for the next 5, 10, 20 years. So that's one prong of the strategy. The second prong of the strategy, that's sort of the nonprofit sector, uh, community, uh, community agencies, social service agencies, churches, all, all of us doing this work together, trying to learn together, challenge each other, make each other better. The second one is the public sector, and I'm going to focus on the police. And again, happy to get, to get pushback, happy to have other thoughts. But I do not think there has been a coherent strategy for violence reduction that we've seen from the police. You've seen big citywide units that were created. And again, that is counterintuitive to me when we talk about 30 different groups in one neighborhood and multiply it by 15. You don't need big citywide units. You need officers in the community who know their community, who are walking the streets, who are building relationships. So doing that from a citywide standpoint, I can't do this work from my office downtown. You can't, you can't see what's going on. You've got to be out in the streets. 
You had a gang asset forfeiture ordinance that went nowhere. You've seen a, a teen curfew, something that has probably been pretty ineffective. You have low morale in the police department. We've seen way too many uh, tragic suicides. Um, it's heartbreaking to me to see officers. We've had a couple officers in the district where we worked the closest, District 5 out south. And to, to see that happen is just um, it's beyond heartbreaking. You've seen an attrition rate in the retirement that's staggering. 1,100 down. The force is down 1,100 folks. You don't sort of talk about just how many positions are funded. It's how many folks are actually serving. You're seeing the exit. You see date, you know, canceled days off. And you've seen the exit of really talented folks, whether it's civilians like Bob Boyk, who was leading the consent decree work, whether someone like Deputy Chief Cato, who was just an extraordinary leader that when we had a problem at 11 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever it might be, he'd be out there with us. Seeing talent like that walk away from the force um, isn't a win for anybody. And there's a, a lack of trust and transparency. If we go to the next slide... This might be a little stunning to folks. So if you look, and these are just a couple of neighborhoods we took. If you look at neighborhoods where, where we work or where our partners work, we've basically had an arrest-only strategy, and the truth is almost no one gets arrested. So if you shoot someone in these neighborhoods, you have a 92, <laughs> uh, sort of an 87 to 92% chance of getting away from, uh, uh, with that. And if you just shoot someone and don't kill them, almost none of that gets solved, like never. And if you kill someone, a tiny percent gets solved. And this is a, a tough thing to say, but we need to have an honest conversation if we're going to get to a better place. I believe that one of the biggest drivers of violence in Chicago is actually police ineffectiveness. That because there isn't a consequence, because there isn't justice in a criminal justice system, you get street justice. And you get guys saying, if no one cares about the loss of my brother, my loved one, or my whatever, then I have to get my lick back. I have to do what I have to do. And I understand that logic. I can't say I agree with that logic. But people often like to label us as the the get-out-of-jail-free guys. That's the opposite. I want there to be consequences. I want there to be deterrence. I want if you shoot someone, there's a high likelihood that you'll go to jail for 30, 40, 50 years if you kill someone. Um, nobody wants to go to jail now. There's no pride in going to jail. That's not some right of manhood or something like that. Um, So if we had an effective police force where things got solved, and that could only happen through trust, building trust with the community, if you had that, that would make all of our work in the violence intervention space that much more easier. We're not in conflict. We We have what we call a professional agreement, professional understanding. We're all in this together. But when you have an arrest-only strategy and no one gets arrested, that's when you have the Wild West. That's when you have everyone carrying a gun because no one feels safe. And we just have to be very, very honest about that. So what can the police do differently? And I am far from a policing expert. I've tried to learn as much as I can and talk to as many different folks in the force as I can. A couple things. And again, this sounds obvious, but it just doesn't happen. You need to deploy your resources where the crime is happening, and at the time where it's happening. And so it's just a matching up of resources with a challenge. And that simply doesn't happen and doesn't happen transparent. So if most of the crime is happening on these 86 blocks and much of it from you know, 11 o'clock at night to 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, that's where you need the officers. That's not how deployment works today.
Secondly, and I can't overemphasize this one, you have to build trust with the community. And I say all the time that constitutional policing is effective policing. <laughs> and the most important part of the consent decree is to build trust with the community. If the only time you see the police is at the scene of a homicide where it's trauma and chaos and pain, if you don't know that person, there's no way you're going to talk to that person. That's just not how we, we, we work. If you've had relationships, if that officer has been on your block repeatedly and knows the kids and knows the parents and knows the grandmas and knows everybody, then you have a chance to have an honest conversation. And so there's no way crimes get solved if people don't trust. And the only way to build trust is to meet people where they are, on the block, out of the cars. It's always fascinating to me, our, our street outreach teams, we all walk all these blocks everywhere all the time, every night. No one obviously has a weapon, but you never, ever see police out walking the block. Never seen police out walking the block. You may see them drive by, but if you drive by, how are you getting to know people? How are you building those relationships? How are you getting to know, you know, you know people at the corner store, what's going on? So building trust has to be at the heart of this. And then ultimately, for me, the laser focus of the police, I let everything go, is to solve homicides. To solve homicides. I saw a stat that blew me away. I won't remember the exact thing. It was from 2018 or 2019. It's a little dated. But Austin had the highest level. Austin community had the highest level of parking tickets that were issued. I don't care where people park in Austin. I, I, I really, 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 really don't care. I do know Austin is always one of the two or three most violent communities in the city. And it's come a long way. We have some fantastic partners. Tenny Gross and others are working really hard in Austin. But let's stop writing parking tickets and let's solve homicides. And if that became the laser focus of the police department, that no longer will it be the Wild West, that we will actually value the lives of young black boys and young black girls and young Latino boys and young Latino girls. If people knew there was a consequence if you shot someone and knew there was a serious consequence if you killed someone, that would be a game changer. It would accelerate the pace of change here in Chicago. And then the third leg of the stool, and again, some folks may push back on, back on me on this one, is the private sector has to, has to step up and be part of the solution. And I get, I've had lots of talks with folks in the private sector, some CEOs, and, and they've said very honestly that our job isn't public safety. <laughs> That's the police's job. That's the public sector's job to, to, uh, to create public safety. But I see it a little bit different. What I see is that Chicago has one of the most vibrant private sector, civically engaged private sectors that I've seen anywhere. And I do know that crime and violence is always just the last manifestation of a whole bunch of other social ills. And that absent the private sector stepping into this space, uh, we, we're not going to get there. So if we can go to the next slide. This issue is, um, it's, it's gotten a lot more interest in the business community uh, during the pandemic when violence sort of spread downtown. And I hate that violence spread downtown. I don't take any, any pride in that. But it's sort of we're all in this together now. And so whether it's reducing violence downtown or whether it's reducing the community, that's all part of the same thing. For me, the, the, the analogies to the pandemic and COVID are, are, so, are so clear. Violence spreads through social networks, um, and none of us are immune. <laughs> if my neighbors, if I'm safe and my neighbor's not safe, then I'm not safe. We're all in this together. So there are, our interconnectedness, our interdependentness has never been clearer. So if we want downtown to be safer, the neighborhoods have to be safer. If we want neighbors to be safer, 
We need downtown to be safer. So we all have to work on this together, and the business community has a huge role to play. Skip to the... Uh, so what, what are we asking the business community to do? Sort of a, a set of asks for, 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 for all, all the different parts of this, this team. One is we desperately need our business community to hire the alumni of men and women coming out of our collective programs across the city once they complete. And I want to be really, really clear here. I know it can be scary. It might be very scary to hire someone who might have a criminal background, who might have a felony in their background, who might have a violent felony on their background. But we're not asking anyone to take anyone straight off the street or straight out of Cook County Jail. But if they have spent a year or a year and a half at a programming, receiving life coaching, receiving cognitive behavioral therapy, getting their high school diploma, getting their job readiness skills, they're in a very, very different place than where they started. And all of our men and women, they're going to eat, they're going to pay rent, and they're going to take care of their kids. And it's up to all of us in rooms like this to decide, is that going to be in the illegal economy, which here in Chicago so often leads to violence, or in the legal economy? And please trust me when I tell you this, 98, 99% of people would much rather have a stable paycheck and not have to watch their back and be able to provide their families than to be ducking and dodging and running from the police and getting shot at. And because there's no, you know, the gangs have been decentralized, because there's no, uh, no economies of scale, no one's getting rich in the streets. Almost no one's getting rich in the streets anymore. We pay a small stipend, 150, 250 bucks, whatever. This guy's coming to our program. About half our guys, that's a pay increase. And half our guys, that's a pay decrease. And they're willing to take it because of the stability. I'll never forget in our first, our first cohort, um, one, of our, one of our guys who may have done the most shooting out of that group, the most destruction in, in the community, he walked me through his economics. He was making $120 a day on the streets, and he had to pay one of his other little guys $40 a day. So he was making $80 a day and creating mayhem. Well, our little stipend, we basically doubled his income. It's an easy choice for him to make. And again, I always say we're not often a, a second chance. We're a first chance for folks. So we need the business community to step up and be willing to hire folks who have a criminal background, who might have a felony, who might have a, a violent felony, but putting all of our reputations on the line, we will stay with them, we will work with them, and they've come a long way from where they started. And you have to understand all of us have a chance to change. I always say that you know, you know, if I was judged by the worst thing I did, I probably wouldn't be standing here. Many of you probably would not be in this room if you were judged by the worst thing you did in your life. But so the, the, the accumulation of all of our, our deeds and acts and actions and habits, that's what we have to be judged on, and we need the business community to step up there. Secondly, I talked about the hot spots. We need businesses to invest and start to play in these communities. If we have a, a glamorous and gleaming downtown in neighborhoods that have been redlined and marginalized and pushed aside, why well, do you think people in those neighborhoods feel? They feel that anger. They feel the resentment. They feel they're left out. They can see downtown, and it's a different world. We're a tale not of two cities in Chicago. We're a tale of 10 cities. So we need businesses to start to come back to the neighborhoods and invest and create jobs. And then finally, as we try and scale the work in the, in the violence prevention community, we need the business community to continue to invest. And those partnerships and that philanthropic investment has been fantastic, but that has to continue. So those are, for me, the three 
legs of the stool, the three parts of the strategy, challenge all of us to get better, hold ourselves accountable. We in the violence intervention space, police and public sector have to step up, and then the private sector has to be at the table with us. And then for me, it's always got to be, what's the goal? To what end? And what's been stunning to me in Chicago is we have lacked the courage to have a goal for violence reduction. And I've never heard of a business, to didn't have a, a business that didn't have a goal for annual growth. I've never heard of a sports team that doesn't have a goal, whether it's to make the playoffs or win the World Series or the championship or the Super Bowl. We all set goals. It doesn't mean we're going to achieve them, but we have to have a goal. And not one person here can say what the city's goal for violence reduction has been forever. So I just want to put a goal out. And people can push back and challenge or whatever and always aim for what I call ambitious but achievable goals. And so our goal, what I'd like to see us unite behind, is an 80% reduction of violence in the next five years. And that's not random. That's not a random number. What we need to do to be on par with New York and L.A., and again, I would like to say let's get to zero homicides. I'm not naive. That's not going to happen. I just don't want us to be the anomaly. I don't want us to be that wild outlier compared to those other cities. If we get below 200 homicides, that puts us in line based upon population for where New York and L.A. are. And why do their citizens deserve to be safer than our citizens? I don't think they do. I think our kids deserve everything the kids in New York and L.A. deserve. So to get there, the math of it is about a 22% reduction in violence each year. This year we're at 17%. So far, we'll see where we end up. We have to accelerate the pace of change. But if you think about all three sectors on the violence intervention space, how we're not at scale in any neighborhood, and we need to be scale at 15 if you look at how ineffective the police are now and where they need to go, if you think about the business community committing to really hiring that scale and investing in communities, continue to fund this work, we're down 17% and none of us are anywhere near where we need to be. So for me, there's tremendous upside. So I don't see this as some wild, you know, naive you know, goal. I see this as something that we can maybe go faster than that. We can maybe speed that up. And at some point, we'll hit a critical mass. Violence begets violence. The more violence you have, the more retaliation you have. But peace also begets peace. Where we have peace, you have less retaliation. People feel safer. They put the guns down. So at some point, we'll start to build on our own momentum in the right direction. The problem is we've been building, our wrong, in the, we've been building on our momentum in the wrong direction for, for far too long. And what I'd love us to do is unite behind a goal. It doesn't have to be this goal. It might be a better goal or more something goal uh, than I have. I want us to unite behind the goal, and let's debate the strategies. Let's try some different things. None of us have all the right answers. Let's, you know, what works in one neighborhood might not work in another. Let's come at this different ways. Different businesses might, might uh, decide what their role is. It doesn't have to be cookie cutter. But let's unite behind the goal, and let's hold all of ourselves accountable for an evidence-based drive to get to that goal. And let me just conclude, and then I'm happy to take your questions, of, of why I'm so hopeful. And this is the, the hardest work I've ever done. We've been at it for six years now. It is honestly the most heartbreaking work I've ever done. But it's also by far the most inspiring and the most meaningful. And I was hopeful when I started. I wouldn't have embarked on this journey if I didn't think we could get to a better place. That hope was sort of a, a hope in the future, a little bit of a hope in the unseen, hope from a lot of conversations. But I can honestly say that you know, six years after we started, I'm more hopeful today than I was when I started. And I'll sort of walk through why, I'll walk through the pieces. I'm really just hopeful because of people. And the interesting 
part of my work is I think I get to see the best of humanity. I also get to see the worst of humanity. But you can't see one about the other. And on the community side, and I don't want to start naming folks. I'll leave folks out. But I've been part of some amazing teams in my life. But I've never been part of a team with more heart and more commitment than our Chicago Pred team and all of our partners across the city. To see people literally putting their lives on the line every single day, coming to this work, putting themselves at risk, handling crazy situations, dealing with a heartbreaking failure, failure of losing lives. And we've lost far too many lives of young men and women in our program as of other folks. But being willing to absorb that heartbreak, try and deal with it and come back and keep fighting the fight, um, it is beyond inspiring. And our partners across the city who are doing this work, we're all working together, we're all collaborating. Um, it is an unbelievable, unbelievable team. I don't like to use a sort of a war mentality, a war metaphor, but there's not a group of people I would rather be in a foxhole with than these folks. And whenever things are tough, it be two in the morning, it can be two in the afternoon, whenever there's something going on, folks are out there working extraordinarily hard, challenging themselves to stay with this work, and just to see how hungry folks are to grow, to scale, to do more. No one's saying, you know, mission accomplished. No one's saying we're there. Everybody wants, is hungry to get to a better place. That's beyond inspiring. On the police side, there's some amazing commanders we work with and uh, so thankful for their partnership. And working with folks in the violence prevention space, and many, many folks on our team have backgrounds that can be a little you know, counterintuitive to, to, to the police. But to see them start to trust us and work with us is extraordinary. Um, Chaps will be sitting right up front here. My, uh, my, my partner, I don't want to say my partner in crime, but uh, sorry, <laughs> I could get her in trouble. But uh, Sar Sergeant Williams is just um, one example, mm -hmm. just of an extraordinary, extraordinary police officer. And she will lock you up in a heartbeat. Uh, she, she was locked up way too many of the guys that we, we worked with in the past. Um, but she would much rather give them a chance to do something else. She would much rather see them turn their lives around. And she and I have literally done home visits together. Well, she will take me to a guy's house who they might be chasing for something, but she's like, go to Chicago Pred and get yourself together and we'll leave you alone. The, This, this whole non-aggression agreement, peace treaty work that we do, the first peace treaty that was put in place, we didn't put in place. They actually, two young men, young men who lived in her community, because she, she works in the community where, she's, where she uh, lives. You think about if more police lived in the community where they worked, what that would mean. So one a guy who was, wasn't yet our participant, became one of our participants, now is on our, our team, our staff, came to her, came to her house and was just tired of, 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 the gun sh of, the, of, the, of the gunfire. And he sort of went to her house to get her blessing <laughs> to go talk to the other side. And he put his life at risk to walk over there unarmed, lift up his coat, show he had no guns, and was able to broker that peace agreement. That only happens with her blessing. That only happens. They go back to police trust. That's the ultimate in trust. And so we need a lot more officers like, like uh, Sergeant Williams who are out in the community making a difference. They will enforce the law. <laughs> but they will give you a chance to turn your life around. And again, we can't have an unrest-only strategy. We have um, Chris Patterson here from the state. Where's Chris? Chris is in the corner. And, and the state has just been a, such a critically important partner. The city, the county, the state, feds, we need partners at every level. But what I love about Chris is Chris has lived experience, and I appreciate the, the governor for hiring him. 
And you have to take a risk to hire someone who maybe had a background or whatever. But Chris's heart and his intellect and his passion, he's following all this stuff. He's watching the data. He's figuring stuff out. Offline, he called me the other day. Not about any of that. He wants to help mentor one of the members of our team and help him continue to grow. And just to have folks in leadership positions like that. Chris, thank you for your service. Thank you for being a great partner. And we need a lot more people in policy positions with lived experience. He may not have a PhD. Maybe he does have a PhD. I don't know. No. But, <laughs> but he's got a PhD in what matters, which is what's actually going on in community. And we undervalue that resource. And so his, again, having that intellect, having that background makes him better. He, couldn't be, he wouldn't be as effective as he is if he didn't have that. So we've got to recognize that as a strength, not as a challenge. And then on, on, the, on the private sector, uh, Robert Carr, where's Robert? So... Robert, I didn't even know Robert. He came, heard me at some, some speech somewhere, came up, said he wanted to hire. And he's hired a whole set of our guys and continue to hire. And we have about 44, 45 employers in 17 industries who hired the back end. We're so thankful for that. But we need a lot more people hiring because we're scaling. We need to hire alumni from all of our partners across the city. But Robert stepped into that gap and has consistently hired and brought guys in in numbers. And it's been so incredibly helpful. There are other folks here. <laughs> Rich Flewitter in the back is a you know, lawyer, partner at a big law firm, and he's hired a couple of our guys. And have our guys from the streets with backgrounds work at a law firm downtown? That's pretty crazy. But Rich is a, Rich is a little bit crazy, and he's got, a big, <laughs> he's, got a, he's got a big heart. And what I always say to, him, to the employers, if you want to write us a check, I'm happy if you write us a check but I'd much rather you give us a job. That job is way more valuable than a check. And so to have folks stepping up and find those employment opportunities are huge. And then back, I can't, Jim, Jim, Jim's in back, Jim Crown. And so we need civic leadership. And Jim Crown probably, you know, most of his life probably didn't spend a ton of time thinking about crime in Chicago, but better or worse, crime and violence came and found him. And rather than running from it, rather than, you know, moving out of town, which lots of folks have an opportunity to do, He's been relentless in how do we engage? How do we partner? What can we do to help out? And to have him now chairing a committee with a civic committee, a task force focused on reducing violence, um, we've never had that before. We have to have that. We have to have the business leadership. So, Jim, thank you so much for your generosity and for your leadership and being passionate about it. And then the final thing, and then I'll take your questions, is the thing that always makes me the most hopeful is just spending time with our, our men and women. And to see what they're capable of, to watch their transformation, um, that's what fuels all of us every single day. And like I said, we deal with way too much trauma. We deal with way too much heartbreak. But we deal with just some extraordinary stories. So Jeremy Jordan, who's sitting next to Rich, met Jeremy in Cook County Jail. And I told him this. I, you know, he was extraordinarily angry. Why was he angry? Because his brother had just been shot four or five times and paralyzed. And no one cared. No one investigated. He got picked up on a gun charge. And... He's like, if no one else cares, I have to go do something. And that, I understood. I felt his anger, but I also saw his intelligence. And so he's come out. He's worked at Rich's Law Firm for almost four years now. Recently got a huge promotion. And Jeremy's always pushing, let me come back and talk. He came out a couple weeks ago, talked to our, our, our young guys at the Youth Peace Center. Wants to help out, wants to give back. Robert Carr hired Jeremy, uh, hired uh, Brent, Ben and Taylor right here. Ben worked for Deloitte for a couple years, wanted to do something else. Went to work there. Brennan was in our first cohort. And uh, 
Brendan taught me so much. <laughs> we, I don't know if you remember this. We had a lot of ideas we thought were good. I, you know, guys were late for work and we were going to buy a van. And Brendan's real quiet. He's like, Arne, you can buy a van, but I'm never getting in it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you remember this. I remember this like yesterday. I'm like, Brendan, what are you talking about? And Brendan said, Arnie, I got a target on my back. And if I'm in that van, I'm a sitting duck and I'm going to get killed. I'm like, Brendan, I got you. I understand. And so we didn't buy a van. We waited a couple of years. We got some vans now with tinted windows. But, but Brendan saw some things and helped to shape our program and see the leadership he's providing. He's just recently got a promotion there. Blummer's Chocolate is remarkable. And there are lots, I don't want you know, a million other examples I could give. So this is a human story. It is a story of some tragedy, but it's a story of incredible human triumph. And I just want folks to hear to understand what's possible to raise our aspirations to raise our collective ambitions, and to come together. And if we are where we are today, five years from now, collectively, we would have all failed. We are in a point of crisis. It is not sustainable. But if four or five years from now, we're down 75, 80, 85%, um, we can all sit and say we did something great, not just for this generation of children in Chicago, but for generations to come. And the final thing I'll close with is, I said in the introduction, I appreciate it, is for folks to understand, again, maybe a little hard, a little counterintuitive, that our young men, whether it's Jeremy or Brendan or Ezra, or other, a lot of folks here, they are not the problem. They're the solution. And we've got to walk with them. We've got to learn from them. We have to do it humbly. I always say these are men, not boys. We have to co-create. We're not telling them what to do. These are not five-year-olds. If we're doing something wrong, they're going to tell us. They're not shy. We've got, we got to course correct. But if we give them a chance to do something different, I promise you, I promise you, the overwhelming majority of men and women on South and West Sides will meet us more than halfway and lead us as a city to where we need to go. Thank you so much. a little cultural, but Arnie gets his card. He had three closes. Did y'all catch that? <laughs> I'm laughing because there's some people in the room who are cracking up and have no clue as to what I'm talking about. But, right. Father Flager, you got that, didn't you? Okay. He gets his card. Man, he had three closes. Um, this is tough stuff. And thank you so much. First of all, Thank you to Chicago Cred. Stand up if you're in the room and you're part of Chicago Cred. And Arnie says the partners as well. It's a whole bunch of people. Yeah. That's the tough work. Um, I get to work in a building downtown and we talk about numbers. And most of the people that I serve as probably are not in this room. There are a few. But we talk about numbers and see those numbers up there. I don't know how many of you all found it shocking, but I certainly did. Um, let me just ask a question while he takes his water. How many people in this room have not been affected by gun violence? Yeah. So, yeah, that's the answer. Um, we're going to go right into our questions. We have a few. 
uh, I will say this, peace begets peace is going to be the word for the day for me. And I ask that it be for you all as well. That was so touching and moving to know that peace does beget peace, but we've got some way to go. To say that a young man, whoever that was, was smart enough to know not to get in the van. Um, that's real, right? Um, to think that you can't go to work in a, yeah, with Chicago, well, you can have Chicago cred written across and everything. No. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, we were, we were. Yeah, yeah, no. None of that, none of that, none of that. So I'm going to go right into the questions. Um, Ann Dodge, are you here? Ann Dodge is from, oh, okay, from Second Muse. Do you know what Second Muse is? Okay, I don't either. Uh, I'm guessing it's an organization of some sort, so thank you for being here. What does it mean that the majority of CRED's financial support comes from outside of Chicago? Does Chicago lack the will or the money to support you at the level that the Emerson has? It's a good question, actually. All right. That, that, was, not, that was not a setup. I appreciate the question. All right. <laughs> I'll just say that we as a city need to continue to support each other. And I want to be clear, I don't want more money for cred. I want it for our partners. Actually, more than half our budget we give to partners. We run programs ourselves. We both fund the work and do the work, but the majority of our budget goes to our partners across the city. So we're all in this together. And I think it's why I try and hit the data so hard, is I think people don't understand the impact that violence prevention can have. And... Uh, you know, just again, not to overwhelm numbers, but as a city last year, we spent twice as much on police misconduct settlements than on violence prevention work. So think, think about that. And so whether it's public sector investment, whether it's private sector investment, um, if we weren't getting some results, I would come here and say we need a different strategy. It's not working. But when I see the, the possibilities of what's happening in North Lawndale, when I see the possibilities of what FLIP is doing, again, all early, all Correlation, not causation. Um, yes, we need Chicago to step up and do a lot more. And let me say quickly, I should walk through the math of it. For me, North Lawndale, to get to scale, these are rough numbers, about $15 million on the violence prevention side. If you do $15 million per year times 15 neighborhoods, that's $225 million a year. If we sustain that for five years, that's a little bit north of a billion. And the majority of that, the vast majority, has to come from the public sector. That's the only way you scale private sector intervention, um, private sector innovation. But we need the private sector to, to continue to invest, and we need the public sector to understand that more police budget has not proven effective. Again, that's where we need to go. At some point, we want to talk more about the fact that these arrests are not being um, made. Um, Father Flager, I want to talk to you about that at some point. I think that's an, that's an issue. That, that's a real issue. Um, and it makes sense that these 30 groups want their payback because people aren't getting arrested. That, that all seems to gel together once you see the numbers. Again, I get to do numbers at my job, and they tell the truth. Neil Nosen from Immunize Chicago, are you here? No? Okay. Please comment on what you know about the effects of taking care of our city environment on reducing crime and gun violence, taking care of our city environment, such as vacant lots, weeds, graffiti, and litter. Yeah, so I, at the end of the day, I always think we're trying to solve an economic problem, not a crime problem. We have to continue to employ and create jobs. And so if you look at any of our neighborhoods, 15 neighborhoods with high violence, um, you can talk about what they don't have. They have lots of things, lots of things they do not have but they all have a whole lot of vacant lots. 
They all have a whole lot of abandoned buildings. They all have a lot of work that should be led by the community to strengthen that. And if those vacant lots become playgrounds and community gardens, if those buildings become habitable and not trap houses, um, that changes everything. And so being much more creative about how we deploy our greatest asset, our people, to help strengthen and build and beautify their neighborhoods. Uh, just one quick example, again, thanks so much to the, the peace treaty that we put in place with uh, Sergeant Williams' support. Um, about a year into that, where we had no violence, I went and asked one of the guys, you know, what can we do to say thank you? And I was worried, you know, so like, say, give me a car, give me whatever. <laughs> and sort of, you have to make yourself a little bit vulnerable. And I'll never, he said, um, our kids have no place to play, so can you build us a playground? And so with the support of the White Sox and Kaboom and other partners, we did a one-day build on the block on 104th and Corliss. We built a playground. Think if we did that, all these other non-aggression agreements, peace treaties, think if we were building a lot more playgrounds for kids so they can play when the bullets stop flying. I'm going to double this question from Ruben Abarca, who has a great question, and Vanessa Knox. Are you? I know Ruben's here. Is Vanessa here? Okay, so how can we include the communities um, as you work to deal with the STEM gap um, in education and um, a little bit of your old job a little bit? And um, how could the role of corporations help in solving this issue, especially since uh, there's a push to look for diverse talent? Yeah, I'll take that more broadly that for so many, I, I talked about for our, our alumni who graduate from our program, go to the world of work, I talked about about 44, 45 employees, 17 different industries. Our men and women have all the same diversity of skills and interests that all of us have. So it's manufacturing, it's construction, it's culinary, it's safety, it's healthcare. It's a, a wide variety of different, different uh, security, a wide variety of different things. And so the more businesses can help, I should have mentioned this earlier, so it's helpful, job shadowing and career days. Some of our folks have le literally never had a real job. They've never had a job outside of the streets. And so just getting some exposure. And they might go on eight different visits and like nine of them, but the ninth one might be something they love and that becomes their passion. We need that partnership. We need that exposure. So just allowing us to come to your places of work and just spend a half a day and talk to some folks and build this, you know, again, see our, see our men and women as assets, as a potential talent source, to answer that question directly. Um, we desperately need that. Obviously, so many jobs in the future are in the STEM area, and whatever we can do to help equip our men and women to have those skills, that opens a lot of doors for them. Thank you to the companies that are engaging in some of that work. I know we have some companies here that are doing so, um, and certainly we need to continue that uh, I say it often, folks can't be what they can't see. Yeah, yeah. So if they've not been there to, you know, who, do you know what Jamil does? You know, do you know what some of these other people do? If you don't know, then how are you going to have an interest in it? So thank you for bringing that to light. Um, that actually deserves another round of applause.